Take your Bible with me today and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In case you're just joining us today for the very first time, we are studying through 1 Corinthians and we are in the 15th chapter and we've really been here for about four weeks now in the 15th chapter. We intended to finish this study of 1 Corinthians before we got to November, but when I got to chapter 15 and got to studying and preparing my own heart uh, from the chapter, I realized that God wanted us to park here for a little while and spend some time in, in this 15th chapter. And we're going to do that again today, and Lord willing, we'll do that again next week also. Uh, let me just remind you, that if you're keeping notes, that we're going to be looking at verses 20 to 34, and verses 20 to 22 speak about Christ's resurrection Verse 23 speaks about his return. Verses 24 to 27, where we're going to spend our time today, speaks of his reign, R-E-I-G-N, his reign. And then in verse 28, it speaks of his renewal. He's all in all. And we may get to that today. I don't know. Following those verses, you get to some practical application. In light of the fact that Christ was resurrected, in spite of, or because of the fact that he is going to return and that he will reign and that there is going to be a renewal, there are these practical things that you should take away from that, these things that you should apply to your life. That's verses 33 and 34. But that's how this chapter sort of unfolds. That's how we've been studying this portion of the chapter. I invite you to bow your head with me as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we come back today to the 15th chapter. and Really, I don't want to leave the 15th chapter. Talking about the resurrection, the resurrection of our loved ones, the return of our Savior, your reign on earth, and one day the renewal of all things. Lord, that causes my heart to rejoice. I know that this world, I can't do a lot about changing this world, but I know that there's a day coming when you're going to change this world. And Lord, I would pray that you would come and that you would call your children into your presence and that you would bring your kingdom to earth. But until that day, Lord, we continue to study your word and learn your word and apply your word. And I pray, Lord God, that you will open our understanding today as we study from 1 Corinthians. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. At the Christmas season, we often sing or talk about or quote a passage of Scripture from the Gospel of Luke. It is the angelic host that is announcing to the shepherds that the Messiah, the Christ child, has been born. And in that announcement, those angels say that on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. On earth, peace and goodwill toward men. When you think about those words, on earth, peace and goodwill toward men, and then you stop and you look around you and you see what's going on in the world today, you can't help but ask yourself the question, where is this peace? And where is this goodwill? There are wars in rumors of wars. There is a three-front battle going on right now in Israel. There is an invasion of Russia into Ukraine. There is the constant threat of China, especially to Taiwan, but beyond Taiwan, to the whole world itself. You can go to other parts of the world and you find famine, you find disease, you find death. You can come to America and we can well remember the riots in our streets. We hear about murders one after another, seemingly on an increasing basis. We see the depravity and we see the degradation. We see the fighting, the infighting in politics. We see all of the evil that's even around us in our own community sometimes. And we back up at what the angels announced to the shepherds, and we say, where is this peace? Where is this goodwill? If, if it's supposed to have come through Jesus, why isn't it here? 
Of course, part of the answer to that question is that peace and goodwill is embodied in the person of Jesus himself. So Jesus being here alone is peace and goodwill. You might say as well that there is peace and goodwill in the sense that he gives that to the individual who receives Jesus. Because when you trust in Christ as your Savior, you're given a peace that passes all understanding, a peace with God. You're given a goodwill, the Spirit of God, to enable you to live out your faith in a way that brings glory and honor to God. But surely the angels were talking about something more than that, and they were talking about something more than that. They were talking about an age. They were talking about a kingdom. They were talking about a period of time when there was going to literally be peace on earth and there was going to be goodwill to all man. When is that time? When will that day occur? And even the Apostle Paul is going to reference it here in the 15th chapter, that day when peace will reign on earth and goodwill will be seen. There's a phrase that you read often in the Gospels. It actually is given in two different ways, but they're used interchangeably. Sometimes you read about the kingdom of heaven or you read about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Those two phrases mean the same thing. They're used interchangeably to speak about the same thing. And oftentimes when we think about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, we think about a spiritual kingdom. And we think about the Lord Jesus ruling over that spiritual kingdom of which we are all a part. We're a part of that spiritual kingdom over which he rules. But maybe there's something that you didn't know about that phrase or those two phrases. And that is when those two phrases are found almost exclusively in your Bible, when those phrases are found, he's not speaking specifically about a spiritual kingdom. He's speaking about a literal, physical, national kingdom on earth. And to understand that kingdom, you need to go with me on a little bit of a journey here for just a few minutes. And we have to go back to Genesis chapter 12. Really, we could go beyond that, but we're going to start at Genesis chapter 12 with a covenant that was made with Abraham. You'll remember that God in his sovereignty chose Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel. He called him out of that pagan land, and he said, I'm going to give you four things specifically. It's an unconditional covenant. These are four things that I promise you. One is I'm going to give you a land. That land is Israel. Why do we support Israel? Because that land belongs to her, given to her by the Almighty God. He promised, secondly, that he would have a posterity, that the people that would come from he and Sarah would be multiplied to such a number that it would be greater than the sands of the sea, that the Jewish people would multiply in number. He promised them, thirdly, a ruler, that there would come a ruler who would rule over this kingdom on earth and rule over this land that he's given to them. And then he promised them, fourthly, a blessing. He said, I'm going to bless you. As a matter of fact, he says, I'm going to bless those that bless you, and I'm going to curse those that curse you, because I'm giving to you these four unconditional promises. And thus, Abraham was given a promise of a future day when Israel would live in the land of Israel, it would be their land, and God would rule over them in that land. You jump a thousand years later to another covenant. These are not the only two covenants in the Old Testament. But you jump a thousand years later to King David. And God makes an unconditional covenant to King David that relates to the covenant he made to Abraham. And to David, he says, the one who's going to rule over those people in that land that is a blessed place, the one who's going to rule over that is going to come from your line, David. He's going to sit on your throne, David. And he said, I'm going in that day when he sits on your throne, I'm going to give the people of Israel rest from all of their enemies. Have you read the history of Israel? They have moments and uh, temporary times of rest, but they have never had a permanent rest 
from the enemies that have been seeking to destroy them and to take away the land. And yet God said to David in an unconditional promise that this kingdom that is coming, this kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that is coming, I want you to know I'm going to give to you a ruler from your lineage and he's going to bring rest to that land. You skip forward and you continue studying in, into the prophets. And several of the prophets make reference to this coming kingdom. Something promised all the way back to Abraham that was enhanced upon with David is spoken about by these prophets. They talk about there's going to be a day when the curse of sin is lifted from the earth. That'll be a glorious day. When the curse of sin is lifted from this earth, the prophets say things like, the lamb will lay down with the lion. In other words, there's no fear. They'll take the instruments of war and they'll beat them into plowshares, instruments of usefulness rather than of destruction. It talks about a child being able to play where the poisonous snakes are and not having to be afraid of those poisonous snakes. Why? Because this is going to be a day when the curse of sin has been lifted in this kingdom when this ruler comes who comes from the lineage of David and brings that kingdom to this earth. There's going to be that kind of peace and that kind of goodwill that, that will exist because the one who is ruling will rule not, over, not only over Israel, the one who is coming will rule over the whole earth from Jerusalem. You skip several hundred years forward to the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Do you remember what the angel said to Mary when he announced to her that the Christ child was going to be born. Do you remember what the angel said to her? Listen to the words. Chapter 1, verse 32. He, speaking of this one to be born to her, will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end when the king comes, the king comes bearing the kingdom with him. And when he arrives and the kingdom comes, there'll be no end to that kingdom. He will rule over and there will be peace on earth and there will be goodwill toward men. You say, okay, pastor, I get that. But Jesus came. He came. What happened? Why is there no peace on earth? Why is there no goodwill toward man? And the answer to that question is because when Jesus came to his own, his own received him not. Jesus came bringing with him not only himself as the king, he came bringing with him the kingdom that he was offering to his people. But when the people saw Jesus, the Jewish people saw Jesus, they weren't looking for a Messiah that was humble like Jesus. They were looking for that conquering deliverer, and they rejected the king. As a matter of fact, if you read the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, you're introduced to the reality that the king is rejected and thus his kingdom is rejected. When you get to chapter 13 of the Gospel of Matthew, he starts talking about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to tell you something that you've never known before. It's never been revealed before, but I'm going to reveal it to you because my people have rejected the king, their king, and in rejecting their king, they have rejected his kingdom. And in rejecting the kingdom, they have rejected the peace that he would bring and the goodwill to all men. And Jesus says, in essence, I'm going to postpone this kingdom. Now, I want to use the word postpone very carefully. Because in the sovereignty of God, there is no such thing as postponement. God is always working according to a plan. It, it, nothing ever goes awry with God as if, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. God is sovereign, but from the human perspective, from the human side of things, Jesus, because he was rejected by his own people, the kingdom that he was bringing was postponed till another day, to another time. Don't think for a moment, though, that that kingdom isn't going to come one day. 
Most definitely the kingdom is going to come to earth. The king is going to come, and he's going to rule over the affairs of all of mankind. Keep your place here in 1 Corinthians and turn with me back to the Revelation for a moment. Back to Revelation chapter 20. And just listen to what he says at the very end of the Revelation. After the seven years of tribulation and after the years of the great tribulation, listen to what he says beginning in chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him, here's the kingdom, here's the millennium, for a thousand years. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years, there's the kingdom, were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, that's the unbelieving dead, not the believing But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him, here it is again, a thousand years. And when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison for just a short time. In other words, this kingdom that was promised to Abraham, that promise that was reiterated and David told that the king would come from his line, that was offered in the person of Jesus Christ but rejected is a kingdom that is still coming to this earth. A time when Jesus will rule over the affairs of mankind, a time when Jesus will bring what if the First century Jews had received it will be a kingdom of peace and prosperity, a kingdom of goodwill toward men when the curse of sin is removed from this earth. Now, it's important that you understand the truth about this literal physical kingdom. And one of the reasons for having to understand the significance of this kingdom, this physical national kingdom that's coming to earth ruled by Christ, is because if you don't, you will misunderstand many of the things that the Bible tells us. Because in that kingdom, there will be justice, and there will be equity, and there will be things that the prophets tell us we're supposed to be working for, that we're supposed to be bringing about, but It's almost impossible in the world in which we live to bring those things about. We may work toward those things, but it's difficult to bring them about because this is not the kingdom. As a matter of fact, most of, I think I said exclusive, almost exclusively, the references to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in your Bible are in reference to the national kingdom of God of Israel from which Christ will rule over the affairs of all of mankind for a thousand years. And it's significant. If you're an amillennial, amillennialist, you believe there is no kingdom. You believe that some of these things that the Old Testament tells us to do, we're supposed to be imposing on the present age in which we live, not understanding that the primary purpose of the present age is God building his church and advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. We think we should, if, if we don't understand the kingdom, we think that what we should be doing is trying to bring about this peaceful age in which we live, that we should be trying to bring about this goodwill in which we live, in this age in which we live. We start trying to impose kingdom principles onto the present church age, and you get yourself in all kinds of problems because we're not amillennialists. We don't believe that they're, ah, meaning no, millennium, 
How can you read Revelation 20 and say there's no millennium? We're not amillennialists. We are people who believe that there is a national kingdom, that Israel is at the heart of it, and Christ will rule over it, and he'll rule over all of the affairs of mankind. And when he does, what he came offering at his first coming, he will come bringing at his second coming. And there will be peace on earth, and there will be goodwill toward men. Our task today is not to try to bring the millennium in. Our task today is to spread the gospel as far and as wide as we possibly can. And if you don't understand the kingdom principles of the scripture and what it means when it talks about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, you start trying to impose the kingdom on the present age, not understanding that you can't do so, and then you miss the mission that God gave the church to accomplish. The church's primary mission isn't justice or equity or any of these other things that we think of that our kingdom age matters. The purpose of the church is to be a lighthouse in the darkness of a world that's filled with sin, calling people to the Savior who alone can save their souls and give them life eternal. Now, that's an understanding of the scriptures that if you don't have, you you begin misapplying the text. And I find that all the time people will say, well, why aren't we doing this? And why aren't we doing that? Well, it's okay to try to do some of those things, but you will never bring those things to pass in this age. And they will only be brought to pass when the king himself comes and his kingdom is on earth. And you say, Pastor, is that in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians? <laughs> Do you think I'd be sharing this with you if it wasn't? It's absolutely in the 15th chapter. The 15th chapter is about resurrection. There were those who denied that there was going to be a resurrection, not understanding. I'm talking about of people in general. They denied that our bodies one day would be resurrected from the grave, not understanding that by denying that resurrection, they were in essence denying the resurrection of Christ. And if you deny the resurrection of Christ, Christianity unravels. And Paul comes and says, wait a minute, have you thought about what, you're, what these people are saying? If there is no resurrection, and he makes a list of the consequences, if there is no resurrection, specifically if there is no resurrection of Christ. But when you get to verse 20, he comes back and he says, but Christ was raised. Notice at verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Christ the firstfruits. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the evidence that all of the others of his children will one day be resurrected from the grave. There is that promise. We talked about that in a previous message. When will that resurrection of our loved ones take place? It takes place at his return. At the end of verse 23, you notice what he says. Afterward, that's an important word, remember it. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. And I talked in a previous message about when Jesus comes for his church. He's coming in the clouds. He's going to have the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ are going to rise in a the twinkling of an eye, our deceased loved ones will be called out of their graves wherever they are. And in a future message, we're going to talk about what kind of body they'll have. But they'll be called out of their graves. You and I, if we're alive at that moment, we'll be translated into the, into the presence of the Lord Jesus together with them, and we'll be with the Lord forever. That's his return. But now I want you to pay careful attention. Because now he's going to move to his reign, what I've just been telling you about. Have have y'all been with me? His reign goes all the way back to the covenant God made with Abraham, to David, the covenant that the ruler would come from the lineage of David, and that ruler would give peace on earth to the promises that were made through the prophets. 
who said that the curse of sin would be lifted from the earth to Jesus coming, being the king. It says that the kingdom is near in Christ. But they rejected the king, and thus they rejected the kingdom. But that kingdom will come one day. As promised in the Revelation, a thousand years when Christ will reign on this earth and there will be peace on earth and goodwill toward men. But it all comes after the resurrection of the children of God from this world. Because then in verse 24, he says, then, that's another important word. Remember the word afterward? Then, he says, comes the end. Stop there for a moment. If you have a Bible that's not too paraphrased, some Bibles are more paraphrased than others, you'll notice that the verb comes is italicized in your Bible because the verb is not there in the original language. It's been added. It literally says, then the end. Then the end. Well, what does it mean by then the end? Well, to understand that, you have to go back to afterward. Think about the word afterward for a moment in verse 23. He talks about Christ being the first fruit, first fruits. Then he says, afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Afterward. Now let me ask you a question. How long has it been since Christ was resurrected from the grave? It's been nearly 2,000 years. If Jesus was resurrected from the grave in the early 30s AD, it's been nearly 2,000 years. So in that little word, afterward, there's at least 2,000 years right? At least 2,000 years. It may be 2,001. It may be 2,010. It may be 2,100. It may be 2,500. I don't know. But he says that Christ is the first fruits. Afterwards, that's an indetermined amount of time. Afterwards, he says, those who are Christ's at his coming. There's going to be a resurrection of all of the children of God out of the graves where they are. Then, is another word of indeterminate time. Then the end comes. And how do we know this end has to do with this kingdom we're talking about? You're going to see it in just a moment. One of the good things that you want to remember is this. You don't have to know it. Those of you who are not saved today, you need to know it. That when God comes and he calls his church out of this world and all the deceased loved ones who believed in Jesus are resurrected from the grave and all of us living at that moment are translated into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can start counting from that point forward. Because there's seven years of tribulation or great tribulation on earth followed by the second coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. And guess what? We know exactly how long that kingdom is, don't we? So we know between verses 23 and 24, there are at least, at this moment today, there are at least a thousand and seven years. That's if he comes today. There are at least a thousand and seven years so that when he says, then comes the end, he doesn't mean then in the next moment. He doesn't mean then in the next day or the next two days. I, I thought about how to illustrate this to you, and I think you'll understand this after last week better than anybody. When a pastor is preaching and he seems like he's going on forever, and he comes to a point in the message and he says, now I'm going to conclude. Every person who's been in church for any length of time knows that that doesn't mean he's going to stop immediately. Every person knows that that means that he's moving toward his conclusion. It may be another few minutes before we get there, but it's going to come ultimately. That's what it means. It might mean five minutes. It might be 50 minutes. But he's into the closing part of his message. How many of you have heard a preacher say that and thought to yourself, he said he was going to close, but he didn't close? <laughs> then the end. In other words, he's saying to us, there's going to be an end. What is it the end of? It's the end of the kingdom. It's at the end of the kingdom. Then the end comes, but there's a period of time. It's at least a seven, a thousand and seven years in length. There's at least a thousand and seven years at length if Jesus were to come today. Then comes the end. And what does he do? 
He delivers the kingdom. Isn't that what we're talking about? Then he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, when he puts an end. Now notice all the alls as we go forward. And he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power for, here's our third word, he must reign. There's his resurrection. There's his return for his church. There's his reign on earth. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And do you know where that takes place? That doesn't take place in Revelation 20. That takes place in Revelation 21. At the end of the thousand years of Christ ruling on earth, when there is peace on earth and goodwill toward men, what he came offering in the first century, when he came to his own people and they, they, they rejected him, when they rejected him, they rejected his kingdom. From the human perspective, that kingdom was postponed at least a thousand and seven years. But there is coming a day when Jesus will reign over all. He'll put down all authority. He'll put down all rule. He'll put down all power because he must reign and he'll even bring an end to death. Hallelujah. He'll bring an end to death. Now notice how he unfolds this. Verse 27. For he has put all things. There it is again under his feet. That's a quote from Psalm 8. He's quoting from the Old Testament to prove his point. For he has put all things under him. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who puts all things under him is accepted. In other words, we're not talking about God the Father being put under Christ. That's not what he's talking about. Verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, to the Father who put all things under him that God may be. And here it is, all in all. Did you see all the alls? There's like 12 of them through there. All authority, all rule, all power, all things are going to be put under Christ until they have all come under his authority. When does that happen? That happens in this kingdom age. It happens in the kingdom age. Do you understand what Revelation is really doing? Turn with me back to Revelation chapter 1. We're going we're gonna to chase something that's not really in this message. This is why my messages go longer, I think. Do you understand what Revelation is revealing to us? It is revealing God putting down all of those who are opposed to him and all of those who are against him and against his people. It is him ruling over all power and all authority and all things. But to do that, he has to put them under his feet. That's the place of conquering. That's the place of authority over. But do you realize in the revelation that Jesus is presented as the judge. We're given a picture of Jesus that we don't see in the Gospels. We're given a picture that's unlike the image that we often see of Jesus. He's, he's portrayed, first of all, as the judge himself. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. John is looking and he's seeing. and He says, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes, here's the judgment, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass. As if, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun, shining, uh, shining in its strength. And he goes on talking about this image. You're given the image of Jesus who's here in Revelation as the judge. How is he going to put down all things? How are all things all authority, all rule, all power going to be brought under him because he's coming 
to establish himself and put down as the judge all who stand against him. When you get to chapters 2 and 3, you see him now not physically with your eyes as the judge. You see him as the judge of the seven churches, seven churches that are listed. And seven churches receive the word of their judgment. If they don't turn around, if they don't repent, God's going to take the light away from them and they'll die. But then you get to chapter 4 to chapter 19, and he describes the ultimate cataclysmic judgments unlike anything we have ever seen that last for a period of seven years on earth. The tribulation, uh, first three and a half, the great tribulation, the second three and a half, the abomination of desolation in the middle of the tribulation, the mark of the beast. All of these things unfold from chapter 4 to chapter 19, and then he comes and he brings his kingdom, and there's peace on earth. And there's goodwill toward men. And he rules over the affairs of men. And what does 1 Corinthians say? He, he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign even to the place that he's going to put an end to death at the end of that thousand years. Because all things have to be placed under him. And once that's happened, then he's going to take that kingdom and he's going to give it back to the Father. It's not as if Christ is now inferior to, to the Father. They are equal in essence, but they are different in function. And he gives back the kingdom to the Father. And what happens when he does so? Then the Godhead is all in all. Because what comes after it in chapter 21 is a new heaven and a new earth. What this earth was supposed to have been, what this earth could have been had Adam not partaken of the forbidden fruit and cast us all under the curse of sin, that new heaven and that new earth will be and for all eternity. We're not going to spend all of eternity in some place off in the heavens that we call heaven. We're going to spend eternity in the new heaven and the new earth that God has prepared for his people. But first, he's got to bring all authority and all power all of those under his feet. He's got to rule over all of mankind. And right now, he's ruling in the sense that he is the sovereign over everything, but this is the world in which Satan reigns. He is the prince and the power of the world, and God limits what he can and cannot do, but he's at work in this world. Do you begin to see why the world is in the mess we're in? Do you understand now why if we try to take the kingdom and apply it to the church age that you'll never make it work? Do you see that to have those, those principles of the kingdom that you got to have the king and you got to have the kingdom? Because when that kingdom ends, all authority will be placed under him and he'll take the kingdom. That's what Peter, that's what Paul says. That's what Paul says, verse 24 when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, he reigns even to putting down death itself. And in the new heaven and the new earth, we live with him forever and forever and forever and forever. His resurrection, verses 20 to 22. His return, verse 23. His reign, Verse 24 to 27 in his renewal. That new heaven and that new earth, verse 28. Do you see what Paul is saying? How many of you are with me? Say amen. amen. Do you see what Paul is saying? You say, why? In the middle of a chapter about the resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection... There is no resurrection of Christ. If there is no resurrection of Christ, the plan that we've all been reading about for all of these generations and all of these millennia isn't true and won't come to pass. But because he rose from the grave, he'll return for his children. And he will rule over the affairs of mankind until ultimately there's a renewal and he is all in all. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And there'll be no uprisings and there'll be no rebellion and there'll be no hatred and there'll be goodwill and there'll be peace on earth. It isn't going to come in the day in which we live. 
We may work for it and we should work for it, but it will never come in the day in which we live. It only comes when the king himself comes and he brings it with his kingdom. And had, he, had the Jewish people accepted him when he first came, the kingdom would have come. But you realize that says something really important. God knew all of this. God understood all of it in his sovereignty, his omniscience. He knew that they were going to reject it. They knew, he, he knew they were going to reject him. Why then did he go through with it? Because he was delivering to this world the one who would be the savior, not just of the Jewish people. But he brought into this world the one who would be the savior of all people. The one who would go to the cross of Calvary and on the cross of Calvary would pay the penalty of our sins in full on that cross. He would take the separation and the punishment that we rightfully deserved on himself. And he would pay a penalty that we could never pay in full. He would pay in full for us. And they put him in the grave. Had that been the end, it would have been meaningless and it would have been nothing. But because he rose again from the grave... We have the promise that not only did he conquer sin, he conquered death. And because he conquered these things, one day he's going to conquer all of the enemies that rise up against him. And he's going to rule. Hey, you're on the winning team. If you're a child of the living God, you may feel like you're getting beaten up at this moment, slapped around and kicked around. You're down, and somebody's kicking you in the gut over and over. But I've got good news for you. There's a day coming when you're going to realize you're the winner because you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you say, Pastor, how are you going to make that practical? I have no idea. <laughs> How are you going to make that practical, Pastor? Well, I'm going to do it in four simple short phrases. I'm going to skip verses 29 down to 32. I'll come back to those, explain them to you, because we don't believe in baptizing for the dead. That's a Mormon doctrine. That is an untrue doctrine. As a matter of fact, almost everything they believe is untrue, cultic. Paul is not commending baptizing for the dead. He's simply commenting on it and saying, if you baptize for the dead, why in the world do you not believe in a resurrection? And you notice he creates a distinction in verse 29. Other, uh, otherwise, what will they, that's the ones doing this, what will they do who were baptized for the dead? At the end of the, at the, end of the sentence, why then are they baptized for the dead? He's observing something. He's making a comment about it, and he's saying, in essence, if they do this, baptizing for the dead, what's the purpose if there's no resurrection? And then he makes the distinction in verse 30, and why do, not they, why do what? We stand in jeopardy every hour. And he goes on to talk about what he has to go through, what he has been through in his life as a result of being a minister of the gospel of Christ. The price that he's had to pay, the difficulties that he's had to face. Why would I do that if there is no resurrection? Why would I do this? Why would you give up some of your vacation time to serve Jesus Christ? Why would you give up some of your retirement time to serve Jesus Christ if there is no resurrection? Now you get his point, don't you? Why would I be doing these things that I'm doing if there is no resurrection? Why are those people over there baptizing for the dead if there is no resurrection from the grave? But then he comes and he gives this practical application. Verse 33, he says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits or good conduct. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God, I speak this to your shame. I give you four things and I finish. That doesn't mean I'm about to end, though. <laughs> I give you four things. First of all, we've got to wake up. Verse 34, awake to righteousness. The word awake is the word for sober or sober-mindedness. It means to come out of your drunken stupor. Stop laying in your drunken stupor in a gutter somewhere. Awake! 
Awake to righteousness. Start living right. Start doing what's right. Recognize that there is a righteousness in this world. Awake to righteousness. Wake up. Then he says, clean up and do not sin. He says, clean up. You wake up to righteousness. You clean up the sin that's in your life, obviously, with the help of the Almighty God. Now listen to me. I'm about to tell you something important. None of us can be sinless, but all of us can sin less. None of us can be sinless, but all of us can sin less. Hey, if there's a resurrected Savior who's going to return and reign and ultimately renew all things. He is the almighty power before whom we are going to stand one day. It makes only sense that we would recognize that we would wake up from our drunken stupor. We clean up our lives and start living like we belong to Jesus. Number three, we got to grow up. He says, for some do not have the knowledge of God. Now, that sum goes back to verse 20. Now, excuse me, back to verse 12. Notice verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he's not raised from the, from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? There are some that don't have the knowledge of God. We've got to grow up. He's talking about those specifically that are in the Corinthian church. There are some that are amongst you that don't even know that there's a resurrection from the grave. How can that be? This is where my time always goes longer than it should. Can you tell I'm conscious about this today? How is it? The people are sitting in our churches today and they don't know the Word of God. They don't know the truth of God. They don't listen to the preaching very well. Unfortunately, much of the preaching doesn't do what we're doing today, which is expound upon the Word itself. They're more like little inspirational talks that we give to people. And the people go out in their ignorance, living in things and doing things. I sometimes wonder, I look, I have the same social media you have, and we're connected together. And I look at things and I think to myself, how is it that a person who knows the Scripture would want to do that thing? Or who would want to follow that star? Or that athlete? Or that entertainer? Or that show. We've got to wake up. We've got to clean up. We've got to grow up. We've got to come to know what the Bible says and start letting the Bible permeate us so that we live every aspect. Everything gets filtered through the word of the living God. Everything we see through this book. Hey, I'm not there yet. I'm still a work in progress, and I'll bet you, you're still a work in progress, but all of us should be desiring to grow up, to grow up. And number four, we've got to speak up. I speak this to your shame. How is it that there are people that don't know Jesus? How is it that there are people that don't know the truth of Scripture? How is it that there are people who don't know what the Bible teaches us about how to live in this present evil world? How is it? We've got to speak up. And so practically, he says, you got to wake up, you got to clean up, you got to grow up, and you got to speak up. We've got to tell others about Christ. And maybe that's where we'll end in a few minutes. We've got to speak up on behalf of others to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. My purpose in this world and the church's purpose in this world is not to bring the kingdom into this world and to impose kingdom principles on this world. My purpose and your purpose in this world is to be a part of a local body of Christ like this where Christ is at work through us proclaiming the gospel, grounding people in the faith, growing them in their faith, helping them to be mature saints before God so that they can go on to tell others the same and help them grow and mature in their faith. That's the purpose of the church. We're not supposed to be saving the world politically or nationally, though I hope you will vote and I hope you will stand for what is right, you're not going to save this world. 
Jesus is the only one who can do that, and that doesn't happen till his kingdom comes. And until then, we as a part of his church, not a part of this national kingdom, we will go into that kingdom. Oh, by the way, in the national kingdom, you know what you and I are going to be doing? We're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ, and what we're given to rule and reign is determined by how we live and how we conduct ourselves and the stewardship of our lives in this world. going to rule and reign with Christ. I read it to you in Revelation 20. going to rule and reign with Christ in that kingdom. And your role in that kingdom is determined by how you're living in this life today. Wow. So it doesn't really matter. I'm going to get out of hell. I'm going to go to heaven. It doesn't really matter how I live. Oh, yeah, it does. Oh, oh, yeah, it does. You'll be a big loser. You'll be a big loser if you're not reigning and ruling with Christ in the ways that you could have reigned and ruled with Christ in that kingdom. But when he brings that kingdom, he'll put down all authority against him. He'll create peace on this earth. He'll give rest to his people, Israel. And he will rule as a descendant of David and sit on the throne of David for a thousand years. And then, when he's all in all, we're going to enter that new, that new heaven and that new earth forever and forever. And folks, we've got to tell people the gospel. That is our role. That is our task. That is our responsibility. It is our responsibility as the church not to be the kingdom. It is our responsibility as the church to be the representatives of Jesus Christ proclaiming the gospel to the end of the earth. That's our responsibility.